Stay tuned for Occupied Territory America with Mike Fader. And this is Occupied Territory America with Mike Fader. We have a couple of guests today, but let me uh, mention first that you're all familiar with the fact that um, Bradley Manning was convicted of many counts of espionage and theft of government property or whatever else. But uh, he was not convicted of um, aiding the enemy. Well, of course he wasn't because he didn't. There's no proof of that. Um, I've written an essay on this because I don't have the time today. To really talk about it as much as I want to, although I may mention it later a little bit, but um, the essay is on my website. It's Fader Files, F-E-D-E-R, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S dot com. It's an essay on Manning and uh, government invasion of privacy and limitations on free speech and the march towards a police state. And uh, it's been a long time coming, and it is uh, sometimes, sometimes it flares up in the United States, you know, here and there. McCarthyism, uh, you know, what happened in the 60s, COINTELPRO, Hoover was involved. So it's been going on and on and on for decades, way back in our history. But this is the latest example of it. They're debating the sentencing right now. Uh, if you want to read a good essay on it, it's on my website again, FaderFiles, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S dot com. If you want to reply or have a comment about that or anything you hear on this show today or any other time, we have a Facebook page called Occupied Territory on Facebook, and I welcome all comments. Um, first guest today is Max Zahn, and he is the founder of a new website called Buddha on Strike. And he is currently on strike, although he doesn't work at Goldman Sachs, so he's not striking from Goldman Sachs. Current on stri- currently on strike in front of Goldman Sachs headquarters in downtown New York. And um, hi. Hello. Thank you for having me so much, Mike. I appreciate it. Sure, and I appreciate you coming on. So first of all, what is Buddha on Strike, the website, and what is that? Yeah, so Buddha on Strike is a website that I founded that – investigates the overlap between spirituality and primarily a Buddhist spirituality and social justice. Mm -hmm. So it's looking at how our kind of internal spiritual life, how the workings of the mind, um, things that we investigate through meditation, other practices, align with a kind of outward-looking social justice, ethically-oriented disposition toward, you know, looking at social ills, issues of equality, issues of fairness, Mm-hmm. Um, and how best to bring um, what I think is really important, a kind of personal attention to the ways that we personally um, have issues with greed or issues of attachment, and then look at how, on a societal level, those same issues play out. And while we deal with them on a personal level, it is just as important, if not more important, to bring that practice and attention to the ways they play out on a national and international scale. I think that's um, an excellent and absolutely wonderful um, uh, in comparison and actually practice. I've been, you know, re-listening to uh, a couple of CDs I have of Thich Nhat Hanh. Oh and, yeah, Thich Nhat Hanh. Yeah, the, and it's the a perfect bl- a perfect blending there. I mean, here's a Buddhist monk comes over here in the '60s, 
to Absolutely. tell people, you know, what's going on in his country and always approaches people with the utmost respect and, you know, a certain kinds of integration and tries to convince people what we're all the same people. We're all in this together. So it's an interesting Absolutely. thing you're doing there. Yeah, and I think something amazing too about Thich Nhat Hanh is that he has become certainly a great spiritual leader and somebody who is um, looked up to within not only the Buddhist com community but more broadly as a bastion of compassion um, and mindfulness. But he also was a you know freedom fighter in mm -hmm. Vietnam um, and certainly has been an activist in, in his entire life. And I think there is a kind of misconception that those two things are mutually exclusive, that you can't both be the kind of vision of the Dalai Lama as this kind of friendly, avuncular fellow and also be a really staunch, politically active um, and assertive human being in the world. And I think those two are not mutually exclusive. I think they align very strongly, and it's very important to see them in alignment. And I think that's something that we tr really try to focus on on the website, mm -hmm. is kind of, you know, getting past that misconception, looking at the ways that there really is lots of overlap between treating ourselves and others with compassion while also acting assertively and ethically in the world. Well, certainly we have um, Gandhi as one of the great examples of all time. And exactly. although there are stylistic differences, we have our own Martin Luther King here, um, you know, with the, uh, with the Christian, you know, love everyone. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, Nonviolence, non right? Nonviolence. Absolutely, and both of those are examples um, that have been inspirational for this Goldman Sachs protest, because both Martin Luther King and Gandhi, during the entirety of their movements, were very intent upon asserting that they felt compassion for those who were seen as their enemies. They really tried to overcome the kind of bipolar approach to what they were doing, and they said, listen, these are people too, the people who I love and compassion for. They are not my enemies. They are my brothers, but... At the same time, they are also oppressing people within our societies, and they need to be stopped and stopped at once. And mm -hmm. that is the same exact approach that we brought to our protest at Goldman Sachs. So, what are what are the actual practical? What is the practical detail? The nature of what you've been doing, and how long have you been doing it? Yeah. So today will be the thirty-second straight business day that we've meditated outside of Goldman Sachs. The meditations last for one hour. It's a 25-minute sitting meditation followed by a 10-minute walking meditation and another 25-minute sitting meditation. And it takes place about 10 to 15 feet away from the front doors of the Goldman Sachs headquarters in lower Manhattan. And so I have been out there on my own for some of those days and then also on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays of every week. We've held group meditations outside of Goldman Sachs. And those range from anywhere from three to five people in addition to myself. Mm -hmm. So that has been the kind of longevity <clears throat> of the protest at Goldman Sachs. Um, and a, and a, I think a beautiful thing that has come about is that for an hour a day, that space outside of a building that a lot of people see as very vulgar, a building that has really caused a lot of suffering across the United States and the world, that space all of a sudden for an hour a day has become a really beautiful, sacred, calm, and mindful space um, and we've had this really lovely experiences of group meditations and conversations afterwards with people not only connecting with the act of protesting Goldman Sachs, but also really people rediscovering and, and revaluing meditation as something that's important in their lives and modeling that for other people in the United States because it's just very rare to even come across people meditating publicly mm -hmm. in the United States. Um, and so I think it has it's carried that really that dual um, benefit of just modeling mindfulness is something that's important in all of our lives, interpersonally, just to 
be able to consider others and be more compassionate in our day-to-day lives, but also, of course, with an undercurrent of standing up against the harm done by Goldman Sachs. So you are just just for the actual pedestrian details. I mean, to use a certain word, you're yeah. you're right on public property on the sidewalk, right? You're not in exactly. Goldman Sachs property. You're on public property. Yeah. So yeah, it's a street corner, mm-hmm. um, and it kind of ends up looking almost like a courtyard space because Goldman Sachs has printed it up. So there's like a planter behind us, but it is yeah, it's public property right there um, on the corner of Goldman Sachs. Nonetheless, there is. Uh, an agent that comes there every day with a bomb-sniffing dog um, who comes and sniffs any backpacks that folks bring to the meditation. Well, agent, um, you mean uh, New York City or federal? I'm, I'm, that's a good question. I have not inquired about that. Okay, but somebody um, comes who is obviously uh, somebody in the authorities, and he sniffs the back, and the dog sniffs the backpacks. I mean, the man doesn't sniff the backpacks. The dog does, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah the, yeah, the dog sniffs the backpack. All right. Um, and that, I think, you know, I think that is pretty rare for a public street corner. I don't think that usually when people loiter on general public street corners that aren't outside of one of the largest investment banks in the world, um, there's a dog that comes and sniffs their backpack, you know. So, um, so what, I think that it, it is a public street corner, but, but mm-hmm. a, a one that is cared very specially about by the authorities. Well, it's, uh, it's one of Mayor Bloomberg's favorite street corners and one of his favorite yeah. places, Goldman Sachs. And Absolutely. during the Occupy movement, he especially made a point of going down there in public to uh, yeah. tell them what a fine job they were doing while he was sending the cops to beat up everybody at Occupy. So, Absolutely. And there was yeah. a news story that came out about how J.P. Morgan Chase gave $4 million to NYPD right. during the Occupy movement. So there's been a close relationship between these large banks and the NYPD going back now for several years. Well, speaking of the NYPD, what is their attitude towards you and what you're doing down there? Yeah, so there was an initial confrontation the first couple of days. I was asked to leave, um, but I said, I'm not blocking pedestrians and I'm in a public space, so I know that I have the right to be here. Mm-hmm. And they backed off. And really, besides that, there was one other day since then when there was presumably a new officer on duty who wasn't aware of what I was doing, who confronted me in the same way and made the same comment. And he let me be. Um, so the NYPD, I think, seem like they, they don't feel like they can do anything. I'm not violating the law. And I think it looks pretty bad if you arrest someone who's meditating with a sign about compassion around their neck. So I think they kind of feel like they have their hands tied largely. Um, and then there's a private security that's employed by Goldman Sachs. Um, I think contracted through a private security firm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's always a security guard at the door them, and they've been very, really very friendly to me since I've been there. Um, they'll say hi to me when I get there. Um, they'll say goodbye to me when I leave. They really have put up no resistance whatsoever. Um, so it, it has shockingly not been um, a really harassment-filled experience. Well, well not, not to be cynical or anything like that, but I think it's always a question of numbers with them. If it turned into 50 or 60 yeah, no, people, then there would be police interference. You know. I think you're absolutely right. I, I agree with that. Um, on the other hand, cool. on the other hand, that's something you would like to see, though, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I think um, there's a tendency for this to be seen as a kind of naive attempt to appeal to the good graces of Goldman bankers mm-hmm. and have them just kind of magically, um, you know, have crises of conscience and reconsider their practices. But in actuality, you know, I'm a former community organizer. I realize that the way to build power and the way to actually get change is to have lots and lots of people outside of Goldman meditating and put that kind of collective pressure on Goldman, bring more attention to it, 
and put a kind of secondary pressure on the regulators who also aren't doing the kind of work they should, um, and eventually really mobilize public opinion to do what's necessary to stop these banks from harming all these people. So yeah, that well, is the, the vision, that is the goal going forward. No, I understand that. And you know what, when I think of Gandhi, and uh, God knows I've read endless uh, you know, uh, books about him, and especially his political statements and what he intended politically, then yeah. you look at Martin Luther King, they understood very well that beyond, and so did Jesus for that matter, beyond a certain point, uh, just being a certain way isn't enough. You actually have to step forward, or you have to actually break the law. And they were aware of what would happen when you break the law. So they, like, for instance, when Gandhi mobilized people to sit outside of a huge factory producing salt, you know, or, or you know, distributing salt, uh, he knew that they were going to ride out and beat everybody up. And he... He, and they sat in the roadway, you know, uh, blocking the roadway. So at a certain point, what yeah. you're doing has, I think, tremendous value. But, you know, then there's the next step. And then what do you do about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that um, those examples are examples of um, the strong civil disobedience. And I think this movement has not escalated to that tactic yet. You know, we have not chosen to go inside of Goldman Sachs and sit down in their lobby, for instance. Um, I think that is a consideration, but I also think that um, there's a desire to be patient, which I think um, is important in this movement, too. Um, I think on the left, it's very difficult to access that patience sometimes because we know things are very wrong in the world, and they should change immediately. If the world was fair, a, light would, you know, a switch would flip and things would change tomorrow and it'd be a better world because we know there's so much harm being done. Mm -hmm. But I think Accessing that patience is crucial um, to, you know, self-care and to, to a kind of longevity of action that sustains those participating, and also toward a real, you know, mindful practice of doing it in a nonviolent fashion. Um, and so I think the trajectory of this movement that we're doing at Goldman Sachs, um, while it hasn't gotten to the point of that kind of civil disobedience yet, um, I think is attempting to build power um, through not only trying to, you know, put pressure on the Goldman Sachs employees, but also say to the wider country, look, these people are doing something wrong. We're not trying to harm them. We're not malicious mm -hmm. people ourselves responding with angst or aggression. We're just people like you who want a better world and want to do it in a way that is considerate and is peaceful and is civil. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what stands now. Well, you know, just one last comment about this, and then we'll, uh, maybe the, and some other questions to ask you. But <clears throat> obviously, I have a, a point of view here. Um, you know, yeah, Fred, yeah, go. You have <laughs> Frederick Douglass's <laughs> Frederick Douglass's very famous um, comment taken out of uh, a larger essay he wrote that power exceeds nothing without a demand. You're not demanding anything, right? Um, well. Yeah, so at this point in the movement, there is no specific demand we have from Goldman. I think there's a lot of implicit demand. Right. I think employees at Goldman, I think executives at Goldman, know the ways in which they are harming millions, if not billions, of people worldwide. And they know the different ways they can reform their practices to prevent that harm. Well, but, wait, wait, but wait, if they know it and they're not doing anything about it... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, so you're, yeah. you, are you really sure that they really know that? I wonder. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I think there's probably variation across the employees at Goldman. Okay, okay. Some are more aware than others. Uh, I think that's probably a, a fair assumption. But I think undoubtedly there is an awareness 
at different levels of Goldman that wrongdoing is being done or that harm is being done, mm-hmm. where, they, where they view it as harm that, you know, they probably run a kind of cost-benefit analysis and maybe rationalize it's actually having a net benefit for the world, potentially. Um, but there's certainly knowledge that harm is being done. And I think, yeah, I mean, I mean, I agree with you. There's no appeal to Goldman and to the conscience of Goldman that's going to be the kind of variable that switches this kind of global crisis. Um, but I do think that there is a remarkably low amount of ten- attention being paid to Goldman and remarkably low amount of um, collective frustration or collective calling out of Goldman, despite the fact that their practices and to a great degree precipitated the recession of 2008. They continue to trade in the commodities market in a way that is costing everyday people money on a scale that is obscene, and yet there is a kind of exceptional quality to what they do, perhaps because, you know, we sort of glorify wealth in this country mm-hmm. um, and perhaps because they're very talented and very smart people who often come out of the most prestigious Ivy League colleges. Um, but for whatever reason, there is a kind of exceptionalism taken toward Goldman and toward some of the other mega banks. Well, um, that that that, that 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 part of your answer, uh, you know, uh, anticipates my next question. So obviously the answer, yeah. uh, you know, you, you pose, uh, the, you, know, you make the point here, but the, then the question is why do the mass of people in this country, especially people, and that includes most of us at this point, but especially people who are harmed in a bigger way, you know, like in Detroit or any place yeah. else, why do they not focus on this one place? Because this show is yeah. all about income inequality, which to me is the root of almost all of this trouble, anything you could possibly name. And Goldman Sachs is yeah. right at the nasty center of income inequality. So why is it that Americans in their tens of millions who are affected by this uh, yeah. don't, don't understand it and don't focus on it and don't do something about it? Why is that? I think there's a few contributing factors. I think one that comes to mind immediately is, is how these issues have been covered in the media. Um, but as, as someone in the media yourself, I'm sure you're aware of, the, you know, the different ranges of coverage that Goldman gets, especially from the mainstream media and the kind of narratives that get formed around what happened in 2008 and the ways that we should recover from it. And I think there are different um, kind of culprits that get chosen, different um, you know, sort of back and forth political polarizations that get um, targeted rather than more structural and more economic forces. So it ends up being a kind of political football. It gets tossed between Democrats and Republicans and between the right and the left, but not necessarily a deeper look at who is making profits, who's making some of the largest profits in their history since and because of the recession, and who actually precipitated it. That, I think, gets lost because it's not a great narrative that gets a lot of viewers. It's a complicated narrative that takes a lot of time and attention to parse out and to explain to viewers who oftentimes won't have a great deal of background in sophisticated economic issues that have to do with investment banking. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a huge issue. And I think there are other people to blame, right? The government are the kind of people who we elect who are supposed to be thinking about this. Yeah, right? I was just going to say that. Yeah. We have agencies in place who are supposed to regulate this, the SEC, the CFTC. They're supposed to be doing this work, and they've not done it. And that puts a lot of downward pressure on the collective population of the United States to be thinking about this and acting on this 
when we have institutions in place that are supposed to be doing that work for us, I think that's we a, go about our day-to-day lives. I think that's know? an excellent point, and, and especially these people at these institutions that are in place that were supposed to control it or, uh, you know, you know, punish it even, uh, yeah. are the people, are the very people who act, actually really do understand what they're doing. And yet, that's, then you yeah. have the President of the United States appoints somebody in charge of the SEC, uh, Mary Jo White, who was, in fact, defending all these places at the top of the top yeah. law firm, a corporate law firm. So, I mean, uh, since our... And then, but this is leading up to another question. And we're, you're, we're talking to Max Zahn. It's Z-A-H-N. And his uh, website is called... Is it BuddhaOnStrike.org? Yep, it's BuddhaOnStrike.org. Okay, Buddha's with two Ds in case. BuddhaOnStrike.org. Um, so... Uh, what you have is people um, who are supposed to be the marshals and the sheriffs uh, that we, you know, since we're busy living our lives and maybe a lot of people don't understand what's going on, we trust in our representatives to do this. Obviously, they have all let us down, and they're doing just the opposite. Um, and you've got uh, the president appointing this woman who is uh, the uh, the fox in charge of the uh, chicken coop. So then what is... Uh, do you have any faith then? Here's the question. Do you have any faith or any reasonable belief that anything could be achieved uh, in by voting for either of these two parties on a national level? Um, I think, I mean, I am as suspect of the legitimacy of American democracy as, as the next bloke. But I do think that when you get enough political mobilization in the United States, enough to threaten the jobs of people in elected office, they start to pay attention. I think we've seen that with immigration reform. We saw, you know, Latinos come out in 2012 and vote in numbers that had never been seen before. Republicans got scared. They said, listen, we need to get this issue out of the way in order to make appeals to Latino voters. And now it has a real shake. It got through the Senate as a real shot in a Republican-controlled House and certainly has made reverberations nationwide. And so it's an example that, yeah, I agree. We have a government that's deeply insulated from the kind of political desires and the needs of people on the ground in the United mm-hmm. States. Nonetheless, with a strength of mobilization and also with allies in Congress, because um, we have Elizabeth Warren, for instance, who's trying to reinstate the Glass-Steagall Act. So there's certainly people in Congress who are aware of these issues and see them as focal to, you know, a strong middle class and to a strong economy in the United States. Um, so I think, yes. There are challenges that are deep and that are real and are not to be underestimated. Nonetheless, the vestiges of American democracy still exist, enough so for a large mass movement to influence Mm -hmm. those cogs to get the kind of real reform that needs to take place. As far as uh, your practice goes, just at a personal level, I mean, how long have you been doing this? Did you come from another background, or when did you start doing this? Well, yeah, so I come from, um, like, an agnostic Jewish family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started meditating in high school, and I read the Beat Poets, like Ginsburg and Kerouac and Gary Snyder, um, and then started a daily meditation practice that continued in college. And then I spent a few weeks training at a Zen center in Rochester, New York, and then did another trip to Thailand that was Buddhist-oriented. And kind of over the course of my college experience, had a really strong community. I went to Oberlin College and a really oh. strong mm-hmm. meditation community there that, facilitated deep investigation to Buddhism and meditation and have since just taken on, um, you know, a strong personal practice. And then, you know, through readings and through now doing further writing about it, 
um, have you know just continued to explore Buddhism. The uh, do you get any kind of comments from passers-by or employees at Goldman Sachs? In other words, they might say to you, you know, it's okay for you to sit there. Uh, you probably uh, don't work. Yeah, so that has been said to me. Um, somebody walking by said, "Get a job." Mm-hmm. Um, and I do have a job. I work at a Mexican restaurant in Brooklyn full-time. Hmm. Um, but regardless, whether or not someone has a job does not, does not disqualify them from the act of protest in the United States. Um, but, yeah, so there have been people who have said, this isn't the right place to be. Why are you at Goldman? They're not going to listen. Um, people have said that as they walk by. People also said really beautiful things. Someone came up to me, and I'm meditating, so I often don't respond, or I point to, I have flyers on the ground next to me, so sometimes I'll gesture toward them, and they say why I'm there, and they have contact information if people want to follow up. Mm -hmm. Um, But but somebody came up to me, and he he said, oh, can I talk to you? And I kind of made it clear that I wasn't going to engage. And he kind of leaned down in a really beautiful way and said to me kind of quietly, he said, I just want you to know you're doing the most important work of anybody in Lower Manhattan. Hmm. And it was really, it was really awesome. And there have been a few moments like that of people identifying um, how, how kind of, um, how considered this protest is, and how it's getting at a root cause of what's going on in the United States. And I think really appreciate it in a deep way. How long do you intend to do a thing like this? One of the things that happened to the Occupy movement, and I seem to be kind of uh, very involved in knowing what happened since I talk to those people all the time in the, initially and, and still do. Um, winter came, and that actually had an effect on the encampments. I mean, how long do you intend to do this? You're not going to sit on the sidewalk when it's uh, 8 degrees and raining, right? Or are you? I mean, I, I, mean, I only have to sit out there for an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and there have certainly been some very hot days in the summer. That been no, that's true. That's true. And and. Uh, I am prepared to sit out there for as long as it takes. Hmm. Um, and I think an advantage that this protest has to occupy, obviously, is that I don't have to then sleep there and then wake up there and try to have, like, a clear mind and, and be able to function every day. Right. Um, you know, I go there for an hour and I meditate. And there's no better time to be dealing with, like, adverse environmental conditions than when you're meditating. Because all you're doing is sitting there quietly and you can kind of observe yourself be like, wow, I'm feeling really hot. Like, this is kind of uncomfortable. But, like, it'll be done in 50 minutes. So I'll mm-hmm. just kind of keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it is, as far as being outside in bad weather goes, one of the more optimal ways to be doing that. Um, I, I really, in, in my heart, believe that Goldman needs to be held accountable and we need to refocus the conversation on the perpetrators of what's going on and there are lots and lots of people hurting. I think it comes out statistically, you know, whether we look at unemployment numbers, you know, whether we look at numbers of foreclosed homes, people talk about statistics, but, you know, that really plays out on a day-to-day level with people in ways that are really harmful and prevent them from exploring their creativity and living beautiful lives amongst their family and friends. And that's, I think, a harm that, that can't be overstated. Mm-hmm. And unless we refocus on Goldman and banks like it that are doing a lot of the harm, it's going to continue in perpetuity, and that's the future that I just don't want to tolerate, and I don't think others should. All right. We uh, are going to speak to another guest in a minute or two, uh, somebody um, who lives in Pennsylvania who has a kind of um, anti-fracking victory to celebrate because a lot of companies pulled out of the whole northeastern area of Pennsylvania for various uh, reasons. But, uh, but uh, I really appreciate your coming on, and the website is uh, Buddha. Yeah, the w- go, go ahead. Yeah, the website is yeah, the website is BuddhaOnStrike.org, B-U-D-D-H-A-O-N, 
S-T-R-I-K-E dot org. And we're also on Twitter at Buddha on Strike. And if people want to email and get in touch, they can email Max Zahn, M-A-X-Z-A-H-N, at BuddhaOnStrike.org. I can give more information about the time job they're doing group meditations and talk more about aspirations toward national meditations across the country. So feel right. free to get in touch. All right. Well, good luck with this. And I admire you because it's not the kind of person that I have. If somebody, <laughs> if somebody <laughs> I, I'm more like the person who walks in the lobby and tries to grab somebody and say, hey, you know, so good for you. Good for you. I'm <laughs> glad you're doing that. Right. <laughs> Thanks so much, Mike. I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks okay. Uh, we're going to take a break now. We'll maybe put on a little music and then we'll come back with our next guest. Okay, this is Mike Fader, back again. I'm the host of Occupied Territory America, which appears on this radio station, uh, PRN.FM, and is occasionally rebroadcast on other radio stations. Uh, every, two, every, excuse me, every Thursday at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern, and it is available on podcasts, an archive broadcast that anyone can listen to later, sometimes later in the day on Thursday and sometimes by Friday morning. And... Um, if you want to uh, participate in this in another way, uh, when the show is not on, which is 167 hours a week, you can uh, go to Occupied Territory on Facebook. It's called Occupied Territory on Facebook. And the same issues we talk about here, we often talk about there, and you can um, post your responses or anything else you want to post. Uh, our next guest is somebody um, who uh, lives in northeastern Pennsylvania, where there is, for a change... Uh, in this bleak uh, landscape of uh, politics and culture that we live in called America, a victory of sorts to celebrate. And uh, we are going to talk about that. We have with us Barbara Arundel. Am I saying your name right? Yes, yes. Okay. Barbara Arundel. And uh, let me give people a little background on you here. She's uh, one of the founders of Damascus. That's in Pennsylvania, by the way. Citizens for S Sustainability. And she's currently the chair of the board of directors of Damascus Citizens for uh, Sustainability. She has a degree in bioengineering from Columbia uh, University School of Engineering and a lifelong interest in sustainable and renewable energy sources and the environmental effects of human activities. And um, Barbara, uh, so recently I read an article which appeared on Alternet saying that anti-fracking activists are celebrating cancellation of gas leases and drilling plans in northeastern Pennsylvania. Everyone who is aware of these things knows that the Marcellus Shale uh, formation runs in, in northeastern Pennsylvania into New York, and that's where a lot of fracking has been done. So what 
in detail, what particularly has changed recently and why? Well, there's a number of things. First of all, these leases were structured, structured in two phases. Um, one was a an exploration phase, and the next was a production phase, with um, the provision that the uh, company holding the lease uh, could um, uh, walk in between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, the people who um, owned the land that was leased got payments for the production phase of either 1100 or $1,500 per acre, depending on uh, which section they lived in. Um, and um, even though there was a hold called force majeure on these leases, which meant that the lease time was extended for basically as long as the company wanted, um, the company chose to release and that's a technical term, mm-hmm. release the leases. Now, they explained it as a business decision, saying that the price of gas was low, they wanted to focus on oil, and so forth. And this is primarily a decision by Hess, because the Newfield leases were had been the half that belonged to, to Newfield had been, quote-unquote, ceded, given to Hess. And uh, Hess, so let me just, uh, that's H-E-S-S, Hess. Yes, oh, okay. yeah, they're Hess. the same okay. ones that own uh, major refineries in mm-hmm. New Jersey and uh, so forth. So um, uh, so basically it's a decision by Hess. Now, um, my feeling is that they had at this point sufficient tax benefits, tax write-offs, et cetera, that it was worth more to them to give up the leases than to hold them. Mm -hmm. Even though the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, regards leases as assets which pump up the company's um, bottom line, um, the company still made more money giving these up than keeping them. Yeah, no, I, I understand. But uh, they are, of course, naturally, they have to disregard the effect of any kind of activity that you and your group or other groups were doing there, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Now, the fact of the hold on on drilling via the, the lack of regulation in the Delaware River Basin um, by the Delaware River Basin Commission meant that um, drilling could not... Um, go on. So that's the source of this the force majeure hold, which, by the way, is an extremely rare item to have in a lease. Uh, very, very industry friendly. Um, now, the reason that there is no regulations to permit uh, drilling in the Delaware River Basin, which is parts of four states, mm-hmm. New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and and the state of Delaware, and also there's a federal component in here. Um, uh, the reason that there is um, a hold on drilling is that the Basin Commission is responsible for protecting the resources of the Delaware River Basin, and it takes it, it has taken its um, 
its responsibilities seriously enough that the Delaware River, when the Basin Commission was formed as a result of being forced to form by a Supreme Court decision Mm -hmm. in the early 70s, the Delaware River has gone from being practically a sewer to being quite clean. The shad have come back. That's a fish. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they can't (laughs) live without it being clean. And um, it's a big plus. Now, Uh, Just before the Basin Commission was supposed to vote to approve the regulations, the governor of Delaware, this was in um, uh, in Mm mid-November of 2011, the governor of Delaware made an announcement saying that um, the uh, regulations lack sufficient health and safety protections. And he gave examples primarily from Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Now, remember, this is, this is 2011, and he says then that there's considerable damage in Pennsylvania and that even though there were some recommendations made by Corbett's Marshall Shale Advisory Commission, 43 uh, separate recommendations, they had not been um, uh, put into effect, and they still haven't, actually. <laughs> um, but Markell said that um, he would vote no on the regulations because, uh, and this was about November, I believe, 15th or 16th. Um, oh, excuse me. It was 7th. It, it doesn't really 17th. matter, you know. <laughs> um, but it was just before. It was a few days before they were supposed to vote. So right. this was a big deal. And it's still a big deal because Governor Markell felt that, um, um, here's a quote from him, instead of beginning the exploration of Delaware River Basin and hoping we get a proper regulatory framework in place after the fact, it is Delaware's view the commission has an obligation to ensure that critical issues regarding well construction and operation are finalized first and not subject to subsequent dilution. Well, I find that really extraordinary uh, and hopeful because you're lucky you don't live in West Virginia, right? You know, where, well, where the entire government is... Our government is basically bribed uh, by the coal companies. You know. Well, yeah, and Western PA, it's the same. Right. And what happened when Markel said no? Uh, then New York State said, "Well, we really shouldn't vote yes either because our regulations are not finalized uh, for the state of New York." Hmm. So that's two. And then the other two, New Jersey, um, even though the legislature voted twice, once for a ban and once for a wastewater uh, ban. Um, Christie vetoed both of those, but he couldn't actually vote for um, drilling in the Delaware River Basin, which, by the way, supplies about half of New Jersey's water, Hmm. Um, and uh, um, allow that to happen when it's not happening in the rest of New Jersey. So... uh, Let me ask ask you this question. Uh, He wiped it. To what extent... Do you attribute the activities of, I mean, of course, you're talking about an area, you live in this area, and so yes. uh, you're talking about an area where um, <clears throat> the maker of gas land, which a lot of us saw, uh, comes from, right? And yes. to what extent do you attribute these kinds of activities, the anti-fracking activities in like groups like yours, uh, Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, to what extent have they influenced um, governors, legislatures, and the public? 
Oh, it's huge. It's huge. Um, I was told by people promoting drilling in the very beginning of 2008 that the development of gas um, uh, drilling was going to happen at the same speed in the Delaware River Basin as in the Susquehanna River Basin. Mm -hmm. And the reason it hasn't is that we screamed, we used all political, geopolitical tools that we could um, to make sure that that ship, which was out still in the ocean at that point, was turned before it got close to the dock. Ship? What? I'm sorry, you have to explain this. Okay, you cannot turn a big ship when it's close to the dock. Okay. You have to start that turn way back. So as soon as we knew about this in in late 2007, early 2008, we started attending Delaware River Basin Commission meetings, uh-huh. started speaking out, started educating, finding the science, which is buried, was, um, and most of it comes from industry, um, to the extent that... Um, this is really the first place um, in the Delaware River Basin that really screamed before we were injured. And other places have taken their cue now from us, mm-hmm. and actually we've helped educate them. Um, places like France, for instance, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of other places where we've sent tons of information to. New York is still... Is still um, um, Deliberating. Right. The governor still has not um, um, permitted high volume hydraulic fracturing in the state of New York. Well, living living because... in New York, I can I can absolutely uh, certify that the reason he hasn't done that is purely political. He's oh, worried about what the public thinks. Absolutely. Know. There's polls now that show that um, there's two levels of it. One is if you just ask everybody. Do you think drilling should happen? Whether they know what they're talking about or not, they still, the, the, the majority say, no, it should really be looked at more closely. And then if you add one additional question to that first and say, do you know even a little bit about hydraulic fracturing and gas drilling? And um, when people answer yes to that, the proportion goes up to like 85 to 90 percent say it should not be done. Hmm. I, we're, well, you know, I mean, this kind of education is extraordinary. Was there any? So obviously you worked, I guess you would call it through channels. In other words, uh, you attended these meetings, you influenced legislators. Uh, you, I mean, did you bring any lawsuits? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. We, there's been a series of lawsuits, um, both on our own and with other environmental groups. There's been massive uh, public education, um, including Gasland. You know, Gasland One is dedicated to Damascus citizens for sustainability. Mm-hmm. And our our name comes from this little township where a bunch of us lived. We never thought we were going to become the kind of organization we are. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we just um, kept going, you know, and people didn't have the information that we had, so we kept sending it out and sending it out. And... Um, um it's it's very real and there, the, i'm sorry was there any any civil disobedience involved at all well not not from our part i mean there is now uh from other people's mm-hmm. part um we have attended um um much um so many meetings and given so many comments and you know uh stacks and stacks of documents um, I, I, and right now there is 
uh, civil disobedience um, in terms of the pipeline activities right. and that sort of thing. Um, I don't, um, you know, how effective it is. I, you know, um, when when you have people doing that and it makes some other folks say, why would they care about this so much to do that? Mm-hmm. It It is part of public education because then there's notice taken of sure. of what's going on. So it's, it can be a very important component of pub- public education and possibly policy change. Speaking of public education, is there any... Um any of your stuff, does it make it anywhere near or into schools at all? Well, I think so. I think so. Um, maybe not um, some of the schools that are very oriented towards um, um, promoting drilling. And I mean, there are schools in Pennsylvania um, where the children cannot drink the water and are impacted by uh, tremendous air emissions, and there's gas wells on the school grounds. Wow. Um, wow. So I'm sure in those schools it's not going to have much impact. But some of our documentation, including our um, our wonderful poster, um, what's in the water poster, mm-hmm. uh, recently are being used a lot in in schools as um, study guides and so forth. Um, so there's a lot of people, a lot of teachers have taken our material and, you know, used it as uh, as a study uh, platform. Let me ask this question, a um, bit of a devil's advocate question. There's a lot of people living in New York and Pennsylvania, as well as every place else in this country, who are in very bad shape these days. I mean, you know, uh, farms, uh, any kind of job, if there are jobs to be had, people are really broke. And when somebody comes along and offers them... It, just for the uh, you know exploration process, you know x thousands of dollars, and later on maybe they'd get royalties, although they aren't that much. Um, it's very difficult, isn't it, for some people who are in dire circumstances or have got their family to feed or no jobs to turn this stuff down, right? Well, I I I can offer you a comment, okay. um, which I can back up. It's in writing. It was made to. Uh, the DEC, New York State DEC, uh, by a woman who lives in um, in the Southern Tier area, which is just north of uh, where uh, Pennsylvania and New York meet. Mm-hmm. And she said, um, I raise chickens for a living. I am considered poor, but if I didn't have clean water, I would really have nothing. Mm-hmm. So people understand that, really, right? A lot of people do. A lot of people do. There are, of, others, there are others who, um, many of them own large pieces of property, some not so large pieces, who say, um, this is mine to do as I please, and I'm going to do as I please, and it's all I care about is what's in going into my pocket. Now, this to me is not a, a fully formed um human being because if you don't think about the future and you don't think about um, well, the damage you might cause. Your neighbors as well, I suppose. Exactly. Yeah, but, to, you know, I mean, that that is a very old uh, and uh, unfortunately cherished American ideal. You know, it's mine and I'll do what I want with it. It's a very American point of view, you know. Well, there's... 
um, an American point of view that is even older, which says to look to the seventh generation. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, actually, when I think about this, you know, when you, I often refer back to this, that the first, uh, you know, forget about their flaws and their faults, which were many, but the first uh, organized group formed in this country was the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, you know, of Commonwealth of Massachusetts, right? They had the idea that whatever was gathered, forget about the way they gathered it, but whatever was there was to be shared by everybody, right? This idea has uh, flickered on an awful lot in America sometimes. Right, right, right. Well, there is also within the um, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania um, a protection that is supposed to be uh, part of the... um, of the Constitution, and the it's Article One, Section Twenty Seven, um, of the Pennsylvania Constitution. Mm-hmm. Now, this is. Um, let me just. I want to read it to you. Sure. Sure. Um, exactly. No, wait a minute. That's. Not and it. after all, Pennsylvania was, uh, you know, one of the original. Um, Colonies that uh, you know that formed uh, you know that that you know where our uh, federal constitution comes from you know yes yes, yes. now this particular um, uh, I'm sorry I should have this right at my oh that's all right you can't tip. anticipate every question um, yeah. Yeah. but it's basically saying that the the uh, that clean air clean water um, and the right to enjoyment of the natural resources. Um, is the obligation to, of the government of Pennsylvania to maintain for the current residents and the future. Really? That's in the Constitution? Of the state of Pennsylvania. It's Article 1, Section huh. 27. And that's what, that's, is that uh, an added or a relatively new part of it, or is that from the original Constitution? Well, it was added in the, in the 70s. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, here. I got it. Um, okay. It's Article 1, Section 27 of the Pennsylvania Constitu- Constitution. It's called the Natural Resources and Public Estate Amendment. The people have a right to clean air, pure water, and to the preservation of the natural, scenic, historic, and aesthetic values of the environment. Pennsylvania's public natural resources are the common property of all the people, hmm. including generations yet to come. Whoa. As trustees of these resources, the Commonwealth shall conserve and maintain them for the benefit of all the people. Oh, that's wonderful. I mean, I Does wonder how... Does that give you goosebumps? Yeah, that's just wonderful. I wonder how many state constitutions have something like that. I think well, very few. Well, not a lot. Yeah. Not a lot. See, New York State doesn't have something quite as clear as this, but New York does have what is called the CEQA process, which is the State Environmental Quality Review Act, mm-hmm. which is what gave us the SGICE, mm-hmm. the Supplemental Generic Environmental Impact statement that we are still slogging through. Let, let me, uh, we're, we're nearing the end of our uh, time here for the show. Uh, you're listening to Barbara Arundel, A-R-R-I-N-D-E-L-L, and she is the current chair of the board of directors of Damascus Citizens for Sustainability. Now, since you have had uh, so much experience and you've actually achieved some sort of uh, real effect in this area and you've also educated uh, people in other places, how do people 
who are interested in this or interested in, even in their local areas, how do they get through? I mean, what is there? Do you have a website they can go to? Oh, yes. It's Damascus Citizens with an S dot O-R-G. Okay. It's, uh, so that's D, Damascus, like in Syria. D, yeah. D, D-A-M-A-S-C-U-S Citizens uh, dot O-R-G. And anybody who is in any area of the country who's listening to this and anybody who wants to learn about this, this is the place to go to find out about it. And um, it's not my business to congratulate you. I mean, who am I? But uh, I'm really so glad that you're doing this, you know. Well, in part, um, um, most of us involved in in educating and working uh, about gas drilling all over the country and now all over the world, uh, we can't help ourselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I, I understand. This is something that has to be done. Actually, we, yeah. we are bumping up against the, the hour here. So, um, well, thanks very much. And maybe sometime uh, you can come on my uh, Sirius XM satellite show and we can have the same discussion so those those group of listeners can hear it too. Would that be okay? Whenever you, whenever you invite me, I'll be there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Barbara. You're welcome. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, that's it for today. This is Mike Fader, and this is Occupied Territory America. Once again, anything you hear on this show, uh, you might want to check into um, Occupied Territory on Facebook, if you're on Facebook. And uh, I write regular blog entries there. The latest one is about what happened with Bradley Manning. You want to get in touch with me personally, or you want to read an essay I just wrote on Bradley Manning, or learn other things about what I do in the world, uh, political and otherwise, it's faderfiles.com, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S.com. And I guess we're at the end of the hour here. We will uh, come back next week and probably with an extensive examination and discussion of, uh, of what's going on with Bradley Manning and what it means for all of us. Cause I went walking,